Welcome to episode 503 of Troubadours and Rock On Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. This is our annual Best Of program. We call it Best Bits and Wits of 2022. And um, it features several of our guests that we've had on the show over the year. It's really a tough one to put together because there's so much good stuff that I could garner and grab and share from our guests. But here's what I came up with. Uh, In order of appearance, Almighty Todd, Ronnie Bopla, Legs McNeil, Austin Pendleton, Little Star Run, Michael R. Harris, Judge, Abby Abenati, Julia Gorton, John Bromberg, Kitty Bell Burbank, Surf William, Travis Ignatowski, Leslie Ann Brown, Elamaya Tailfeathers, and Peter McGough. So I introduce them and then I share some of their words, their insight, their verve. I hope you enjoy it. Happy end of the year. Let's look forward to the next one, 2023. Best bits and wits of 2022 coming at you.
homesteader, winemaker, sensei, and our resident reluctant philosopher from Stockbridge, Vermont, Almighty Todd. And, and why do you think revisiting this uh, sort of duality is so important today? In your mind, right now. Well, yeah, I mean, I'll go so far as that. I don't think it's just duality, but it's the the, the multi reality of how we see ourselves and our responsibility to the planet and one another. Because are we going to just try to save the planet so that we can kill it later, or do we want to save the planet because we want to be able to live here as long as we can, or do we want to save the planet because we don't really we really sh- be in charge of all this and we don't know enough about this planet to run the planet We've, we can sure screw it up without knowing that we're screwing it up but how do we need to change the way we think about things and how we operate here British Indo-American poet and visual artist from Sacramento, California Roni Bopla Even today as I was thinking about when I was going to talk to you I was really excited but I knew I had to get ready I made my bed, I had a cup of tea, I um, had a little breakfast, I got dressed, showered and did all that, as if you and I were going to meet at a cafe. And I think just those rituals of being ready in the morning gives us, you know, those little moments of confidence that we need to go ahead. And that's something I learned from my mother. She was a woman that she would never exit her room without being fully dressed. She's just one of those. And that happens. I've known of women who do that, but you would never see her in her nightgown. And, you know, there's also having lost her recently, there's also this feeling of just maintaining that sort of social DNA that she imparted to me is, you know, be ready in the morning, you know, tomorrow's never promised. So just be ready for what happens. And, uh, and so I try, and I think that's something that, again, to your, to your listeners, I think that that little effort in the morning can mean a whole lot for the rest of your day, no matter what you're doing. I'm wearing green, by the way. Green, any, any reason? No, I I like the fabric and I thought green, let's, you know, think about a greener world and, um, you know, just green as go and green is, is blue, green and blue and green are some of the cooler colors. So it's good to have a, a cool color to kind of cool, cool yourself a little bit. That's what I thought. American journalist, co-founder of seminal magazine, Punk former editor of Spin Magazine and co-author of the acclaimed Please Kill Me, the uncensored oral history of punk, Legs McNeil. But, uh, you know, for people that were never there, including myself, I don't know if you can recollect or you can put it in words, but what would a good night be like at CBGB's? How would you describe it? You know, you're a 20-something-year-old kid hanging out with your friends. What would a good night there be like? heaven yeah how so yeah yeah um well the music was just so good and uh 
the beers were flowing and the, and the girls were there. So, I mean, what else do you need? <laughs> yeah. You know, the music was great. Um, it was good to be nice and drunk. Um, you could go around the corner to our Arturo's to do even more substances and uh, bring one of the girls from the bar with you. Manhattan-based, acclaimed actor, playwright, Tony Award-nominated theater director and professor, recipient of Drama Desk and Obie Awards, Austin Pendleton. 
the, the tension and the stress of making it was so great with or the shenanigans Orson was pulling. And the um and and then I went that's when they had all the revival houses in film in New York. And so I went and saw Orson Welles, uh, the Orson Welles um, movies I hadn't seen. I'd seen like everybody else. I'd seen Susan Cain. And the, and the rap on him was that he did Citizen King, but he never did anything anywhere near that good before. So I went to see these some of these movies, and I realized, my God, he made some brilliant movies after Citizen King. And I was sort of ashamed of all the snide remarks I'd made in the press. So years and years later, 25 years later, when I was asked by a friend of mine, Judith Albergenois, to write a play about Orson Welles and Lawrence Olivier when they worked together once, I decided to write that play to make it up to Orson. This is, of course, long after he had died. But I felt so guilty that I'd, if I'd seen all those movies before we'd made Catch-22, I would have had a much higher tolerance for him. Songwriter, musician, writer, artist, actress, and our resident storyteller, Little Star Run. But I've been waiting for years, wow. years. Wow. And that divine timing, first of all, uh, the person being extremely late, you know, like late beyond an acceptable time for that kind of appointment. And, and then that happening, just a really sudden shift in energy, because before it had looked like, oh, this is an angry mob. I shouldn't even be on this street. You know what I mean? Uh, it just shifting across and then you know what it almost seemed like the door was illuminated in my mind you know when everybody shifted away and i'm like oh my god the door there's nobody blocking the door <laughs> former director of the wildlife law program for friends of animals vermont law school professor and our resident environmental law expert michael r harris you know, our air is cleaner than it's ever been, and not just in the United States, but in Europe as well. Now they're having problems in more developing countries and, and throughout Asia and elsewhere because they haven't started to regulate that yet. Our water isn't on fire in this country anymore. We could drink most of it. We have problems with aging infrastructure like we saw in Flint, Michigan, but that's not a water quality problem. That's a water delivery problem. So we have dramatically improved the commons through government regulation and privatization destroyed it for the 150 years prior. Now the problem is, is the government seems to be being taken by the private tiers. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you can trust the government. I don't think there's, I don't know if we can distinguish between the two anymore. Well, sometimes I go out by and I look across the water And I think of all the things What you're doing And in my head I paint a picture Since I come home Well my body's been a maggot And I miss your gender hair And the way you like the daggers Won't you come on over Stop 
making a fool out of me. Why don't you come on over, Valerie? based Yurok Tribe Chief Justice, Judge Abby Abenanti. And to, to speak, based on my limited understanding, you know, the rationale always is, uh, well, these people aren't really people, you know. They're, they're savages, that, so it's okay. You know, we'll either teach them to be right, quote-unquote, or, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get rid of them. As troubling as that sounds, I think that is the history, right? That's pretty much the history. I mean, you know, depending on the area, you know, in California, we had probably more massacres than any other state. And there was a lot of very 
core behavior justified by economic gain. You know, and that has gone on and on and on. And this country is plagued by that nightmare, you know, and continues to be plagued by that. Highly acclaimed designer, illustrator, photographer, in particular of New York City's No Wave scene, and professor Julia Gorton. Yeah, so just kind of like going to CBGB's as a kid with your Polaroid and taking snapshots of the scene around there in the Bowery is what it sounds like. That must have been pretty fun. Um, it's funny because I didn't, I didn't feel like a kid. You know, I felt really totally grown up. And there were some much younger kids that were um, just out and about. There were all these kids that were from friends' high school including um, Bill Arning, who is a you know, well-known name in the, in the art, contemporary art world, um, the Sidemen sisters, uh, this guy, Excessive, all the kids from The Blessed, Angela Jagger. There were a lot of people that were like 14, 15, 16. So at 18, everybody thought it was um, really ironic that I wore this button on my lapel that said anti-teenager <laughs> i was still a teenager at 18, but um you know so you you mentioned tom verlaine he's uh from the the great group television among yeah. others groundbreaking group and and you know i, I look at all of the images that uh, you have of indiv- individuals you you captured people like uh you know debbie harry patty smith yeah. David yeah. Byrne, Lydia Lunch, Iggy Pop, and, and so on, Richard Hell. Yeah. Uh, did you end up developing friendships with these folks? Um, I, I would say Lydia was sort of my, you know, she was my go-to. Um, but before I talk about that, I just want to mention that, like, Tom Verlaine was from Wilmington. Oh. And so he lived uh, in the development that my boyfriend lived. He lived a block over. And so, you know, what we found out, like, Tom lives in Westgate Farms? What? And went to, uh, you know, Sanford Prep. And I, I'd taken, like, a uh, summer field hockey camp at, at Sanford. And so to think that we had overlapped and this super cool guy had come out of Wilmington, we were, like, so impressed and in awe. And, um, you know, so we always felt like, oh, it's the Delaware, the Delaware connection. It's really cool. But he didn't really speak to us. But his, um, the summer after first year, I got a waitressing job, which, which really was, you know, showed me the, the depravity of humankind when you're working at a, you know, IHOP on the, you know, the I-95 outside of Wilmington. Like, I, I just really, like, I, I learned to hate people then. <laughs> and, um, I mean, I didn't learn to, I just naturally did. Um, and I would stop at the Wilmington Railroad flea market on my way home looking for, you know, Bakelite or something. And uh, some cool, like, weird things. And I was walking down one of the, you know, aisles or the setups or rows of parked cars with, you know, their trunks open and a little pop-up table. And I heard, I couldn't, I was like, what? I'm losing my mind. I heard little Johnny Jewel, like, being played. And I thought, what is going on? And this the woman was, you know, I mean, she was you know, certainly younger than I am now, but she seemed like this, like, old lady, and she had, like, a like a puffy, you know, 
you know, shampoo and set hairdo. And I walked over. I said, what? What is Why are you playing that? And she very, very proudly said, that's my son's band. And so, you know, I got I got to know Mrs. Miller a little bit. And so when I would do like, you know, color Xerox and collages and things with them in them, I would stop by and see her and, and drop them off with her because she was just this like really lovely, lovely lady. And um, she and she was whose mother? Tom Verlaine's mom. Uh, Tom Verlaine's mom. Yeah, yeah. So Tom Verlaine's name is Miller, Tom Miller. Uh, and, um, you know, so. The Delaware uh, connection. There it is. So with Lydia, I mean, I think when I start taking pictures, uh, I would say Lydia was part more part of our crowd in that she was like starting starting up. And people like um, you know, Chris and Tina, who I peripherally know now, are very, very talking very, heads you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. Patty Smith. Um they uh, uh David Byrne, you know, David Byrne, they all they already had some degree of success. So there was a kind of um, fandom I had that I think gets in the way of really developing, you know, they were idols. So you can't really develop, or at least I wasn't mature enough to know how to develop a relationship with someone who I idolized. And gosh, I idolized Patty Smith, like to no end, you know, I thought she was just like, just, she got me through high school, you know? (laughs) And, um, but Lydia and I really became friends for a number of years, and we shot many, many, many times together. And um, I think she really helped me develop, you know, the style that I you know, cobbled together from, you know, all the things I had seen before um, growing up. You know, I've talked before about what my influences are, and you know, it's a it's a steady mix of. You know, Vogue fashion photographers like Helmut Newton and Chris von Wagenheim and um, Guy Bourdin, mixed with you know some classic American or classic classic global photographers like Lisette Modell and you know William, William Klein and Dido Mariama. But the the heavy the heaviest influence was probably you know horror movies and glamour movies that were on reruns, you know, mm-hmm. reruns growing up, that, that black and white film noir and you know, the horror. It's, you know, I didn't make anything up. I just, I just copied everything I liked, you know, <laughs> it was very modest, um, performing and visual artist, puppet maker and activist, John Bromberg. Uh, so, uh, at that time I wanted so desperately to be a beatnik. Yeah, they're cool. Yeah, that was my focus, to be a beatnik. I want, so, of course, every weekend I would go to, uh, uh, go, go to Greenwich Village and study the beatniks. And, uh, when I was there, I, I went to Washington Square Park and I noticed this old guy, well, he wasn't that old back then. Yeah, he was old. Yeah. So this old guy who who uh, was beating everybody at chess, and uh, you know, I, and and also he he seemed to be speaking in three different languages. So I did have French and Latin, you know, in the scholarship high school, 
so I had I, I, I thought I was under, the only one there that was understanding what the hell he was saying. <laughs> so, uh, so so uh, one one time when I went back to school, we're looking at an art history book or current current art history, and uh, I see this picture that looks like him. Mm. And uh, so I steal the book, and I go to Greenwich Village that weekend, and I'm looking at the book, and I'm looking at him, and I'm looking at the book. So then I said, that's got to be him. So I started learning more about him, researching about this guy. And, uh, but, but still, I was, uh, and I was thinking, you know, if this is him, and I could beat him at chess, you know, this is a 14-year-old uh, head I'm talking about, you yeah, know. Yeah. If I could beat him at chess, I could beat him in art for crying out loud, you know, and I was really get a, getting an inkling for art. And um, uh, so uh, I would go every weekend, study his moves, study chess uh, moves, uh, read books about it, this, that, and the other thing. I was just concentrating on that. And um, uh, because I knew beating him at art would come naturally after that. But I needed to beat him at chess first. <laughs> I love the rationale. Yeah, fourteen-year-old head, crazy, huh? <laughs> but fourteen years old. Yeah. Yeah, give me a break, man. You know, it's I mean, still pretty uh, cool. It's cool what you're what you're focusing on. So, how, <laughs> as a fourteen-year-old, yeah. you know. So, so you know, I'm there every weekend, and he's actually taking notice to me. You know, because I'm standing out. I'm the only young kid there. <laughs> you know, everybody else is adults because they they, they want to challenge him. You know, he's thinking, who's he's this weird kid in Greenwich Village? And what were you going to say, Larry? He's saying, who's this weird kid here every day? Yeah. <laughs> With the pimples. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so finally, one weekend, you know, and, and, he, he, and, and I'm talking about months and months and months after I set off on this trajectory. So uh, one weekend, he beats everybody. Everybody leaves because they're disgusted, you know, and I'm the only one that's standing there. And he looks at me and he says, are you ready? <laughs> <laughs> and I couldn't say no, you know, because I might not get another opportunity. So I sit down and Larry, he, 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 he dumped my king and, and six or seven moves. <laughs> it was disgraceful. <laughs> so then he bends over the uh, concrete uh, chess table and he says to me, you're not very good, are you? <laughs> You know, and, uh, you know, ah, some people think it was kind of not nice of him, but I think he was setting a challenge for me because I wasn't very good, either at chess or at art. <laughs>
playwright, poet, professor, baker, and candlestick maker, Kitty Bell Burbank. Uh, how are Yeah, right. <laughs> I wish, right? I, we just got it. We have to start telling the truth. I mean, and, and teaching our kids the truth and having enough respect for all people that, you know, they can make their own decisions, but you need to let them have the information to start with. It's and and critical thinking is so important and it, our children should be learning how to think critically i mean we shouldn't want them to to just be going and getting this religious education but i i have this this fear this vision in my head of of these schools that are going to be more like military academies and they're going to raise workers and they're going to raise soldiers and if you can afford another option then you can go get educated and only the wealthy are actually going to know anything close to the truth. If they want to. If they want to. And, right. you know, Kitty Bell, you're afraid, I think you said you were afraid we're going to end up there. I would, I would contend that we already are there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Someday they'll be watching a documentary about life in 2022. Right. And <laughs> Yeah. And hopefully we make some good choices in the next year or so, the midterm elections, and we don't yeah. support these, these, these terrible visions. Yeah, I think it's where we have the upper hand, right? Because this radical left, right, actually cares about people, whereas the radical right <laughs> wants, doesn't. They, they want to control people and they want, they want workers and they want soldiers and they don't care about people. Educator, fiddle player, chicken coop builder, axe aficionado, and our resident historian, Surf William. Well, you make a great point. People again, and I think this is a, a, an indication of the deficiencies in our political education in our country and our, our ideological training and our philo philosophical training. There's a difference between nationalism and patriotism. Right. Uh, patriotism has all of the positive qualities of loving your country. You know, wanting your country to do well, wanting your fellow countrymen to do well, um, knowing that your country is a citizen of the world and for us all to succeed, we have to work together. You know, I want my country to lead and I want my country to do well and I want my country to help other countries. I want to show I want to hold my nation up as a paragon of what a what a constructive, you know, positive nation state looks like. Nationalism is all of the negative stuff. That's the other side of that coin. Nationalism is we're better than you. We're stronger than you. We don't care about you. We don't want to learn about you. America first because America is all I know and all I want to know. And if you're anything else but American, you are inherently bad. That's nationalism. So we have to start to really appreciate the differences between nationalism and patriotism. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. Surf William here. On Troubadours and Rock On Tours, talking with us in the evening where he is in the suburbs of Berlin. And uh, sounds like he has a drink with some ice in it, too. Uh, I, I, listen, I'm, I'm in Germany, but I, I still take my, my bourbon with me wherever I go. Yeah, that's, a, that's <laughs> truly an American thing, the bourbon, right? That's, that comes from Kentucky you originally. Know what else? You know what else? Right on Europe, because, because liquor is way cheaper over here. I, I, do they appreciate a good glass of bourbon out there? 
I mean, you you go into the grocery store here, and you can buy a pair of shoes. You can buy your underwear, and then right in the next aisle is Jack Daniels and Jim Beam for uh, nineteen dollars and sixteen dollars, respectively. Wow, that is for cheap. a fifth. That right? is cheap. How's the how's that how's that happening? I don't get that. Uh, there's a, well, that then we would have to get into the whole like like taxation and tariff thing and and subsidies. I, that's way beyond me. Yeah. All I know is all. Here's what I here's all. Let me put it in layman's terms. The booze is cheap. <laughs> <laughs> and now, urban hiker, elitist intellectual, Travis Ignatowski. He is uh, an urban hiker. And involved yes. in the publishing industry, that elite intellectualism stuff. <laughs> so yes, I'm 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 hiking through the urban, you know, forests right now. Actually, uh, in I'm in Detroit. Detroit, all right. Yes, yes, it's my first time. Interesting place. Is it? Yeah, uh, got to see a little bit of uh, Lake Superior, and uh, now I'm looking out my window at Canada, which is kind of cool. So yeah. Oh, really? You could see Canada from your window in Detroit? Yeah, it's like uh, right across the Detroit River. It's probably not even a mile. Wow. That's excellent. That's beautiful. I did, how about that? My geography stinks. I didn't know that at all. Yeah, it's Windsor, Ontario is right across the river. Well, now's your chance to, to flee. That's true. Yes, that's right. <laughs> and there's like, I could go over there and gamble and buy like legal weed and who knows what else. <laughs> If you're into that sort of thing. Yeah, but you're not. No. not. <laughs> and now, from Denmark, originally from Brooklyn, poet, author, activist, and educator, Leslie Ann Brown. So, um, so, in, so but when I was a kid, you know, we would say when you sun someone, you basically put that person in their place like to sun someone that was like the the, the um that was the the slang so in my title so the joke you know my joke to myself and i chuckle every time i read that title is that i am stunning europe because europe whatever europe has whatever wealth europe has comes from the wealth of africa and also the what we call the global south right because of the the uh, the work, the labor, is that what you mean? The f free the resources, the labor, everything, and everything. the resources, even, right? Even, even the even even the knowledge. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, one can argue. It's like you know they like to say Greek, but when you look at what's what, where did we, where did ancient Greece get its knowledge from? And they say Africa, but then they say Egypt and North Africa. There, there, you know, there's always this hesitancy to. Um, humanize or 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 to really truly um engage with the the knowledge and the depth of culture that actually comes out of the continent of africa filmmaker writer director activist from her place on the blood reserve in southern alberta canada ella maya tailfeathers the Body Remembers When the World Broke Open is the name of the film. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the film is, well, thank you for everything you said, and I, I really appreciate that, and it's it's so great to know that the film is still resonating with audiences all over the world um, years after, after making it. Um, the film was inspired by an experience that I had um, very much like what happened in the film. Um, I, I lived in the city of Vancouver for uh, quite a, quite a while. I lived in New York briefly and lived in Vancouver for quite a while. Um, and much like in the film, uh, like the character of Isla, who I play on screen, I encountered a young indigenous woman, um, standing in the pouring rain barefoot at rush hour, um, having just run away from her abusive partner. Um, and I ended up taking her home with me. She didn't want to go to the hospital. She didn't want to go to the police and she had nowhere else to go. So I, I took this young woman home with me and, um, it was, a a life altering experience. You know, sometimes we have these collisions with, with strangers that forever alter us. And, um, and my experience with her was, was certainly like that. Um, and it was a, it was a, a major teaching experience for me. It was very humbling in the sense that I thought I knew uh, what to do in a situation like that, but it was a confrontation of my own privilege as somebody who um, hadn't experienced, you know, physical intimate partner violence like that. And um, I, you know, I'd never had to navigate those systems before. And, uh, and so it was this confrontation of my own privilege and was also uh, this moment where I was really sort of, um, confronted with, with my own sort of, um, misgivings about those types of situations. So it was a, it was a profoundly life altering experience. And I carried that story with me for years. Um, I thought about this young woman who I encountered that day, probably on a daily basis because she lived in my neighborhood. Um, it's where I encountered her. It was just a few blocks from home. And I walked past her building probably on a regular, you know, daily basis. Um, and I never saw her again. So I kind of carried that story with me, thinking about her, thinking about the experience, thinking about um, all of the possibilities in terms of um, what that experience offered in terms of, of teaching. Um, and so I decided to just take it and um, and adapt it and fictionalize it. Um, I, I sought her out. I tried to find her, and I, I don't I don't even know if she gave me her her real name. Um, so I, I have no idea where she is or how she's doing. But um, I decided to take that experience and fictionalize it and put it on screen um, as an opportunity to you know honor that experience and give audiences an opportunity to hopefully navigate the difficult terrain of, you know, the collision of class and, um, and race and, and, um, you know, what it means to experience intimate partner violence and, and the systems that, that women are forced to navigate, um, in order to, in order to get out. Um, so yeah, it's, it's been a pretty incredible experience having, made that film. I, I co-wrote and co-directed with, uh, with Kathleen Hepburn. She's a very talented filmmaker here in Canada. And, um, it's been a really wonderful experience for us to have been able to put that story 
on screen and then see the ways that it's sort of traveled around the world and the ways that people all over are connecting with the film despite it being so specific you know um there's so many universal aspects to the story that that um it just sort of keeps traveling on its own which is is quite wonderful west village based artist painter photographer performance art from his bushwick studio peter mcgoff start your own war you know Start your own war of your vision. That was his. You know, that's the thing. When you're young and you're a student, you could be influenced by all these things. But when you're a mature person, find your own vision and throw it at the world. Find your voice. You know, do what you want to do. Truly become yourself. The individual with all of the pluses and minuses. All of the euphoria and rage. All of that. And then you can die. You can die. Are you kidding me? You're born, event, 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 and you're dead. From the cradle to the grave. It's a blip. And you're going to be miserable? You're going to drink your life away or shoot yourself up? When nature, which is being destroyed daily, is so restorative and so magnificent, any person can look at a sunset in awe. You don't have to pull out your phone and photograph it. It's right there. Take it in, into you. That magnificence of colors splattered across the sky, pinks or oranges, it's outrageous. I went to New where was it? Vermont. My friend had a little cabin on a lake across the street from a lake. There was no house in front of it. And every night I'd sit on her porch and I'd watch this outrageous display of colors. Hot pink sunset. Orange and yellow ones. Blue with a little streak of orange on the cloud. Nothing competes with nature. Nothing in its magnificence, consistently unfolding in front of us, w- raging waterfalls, beautiful the mountains in the fall of pinks and yellows and outrageous colors. So who cares? Why be miserable when you can look at nature, even in a park? When you watch the trees sway in the wind and the sun hits them and trickles and blinds you by its beauty. That's the crazy thing. Everything's here. And yet we're constantly looking for entertainment. Lullaby 
do come true Someday I wish upon a star And wake up where the clouds are fall behind me Where troubles melt like lemon drops Away above the chimney tops That's where you'll find me have it episode 503 of troubadours and rock on tours with yours truly ew conundrum demure our best of episode we call it best bits and wits this one is of 2022 i'd like to thank all of our guests throughout the year uh so many contributors but I'd be remiss and really ignorant if I did not thank my good friend and associate producer, Dr. Michael Pavis. He does a lot of work behind the scenes and uh, getting our guests and such. He also writes some amazing material for us. Thank you, Michael. I'd like to thank these musical artists, Thelonious Monk, Luciano Pavratti, The Stooges, Amy Winehouse, Tame Impala, Sarah Vaughn, Terrence Blanchard, and Brantford Marsalis, too. You know, uh, 
My dad just passed away, you know, about six days from when I'm putting this episode together. It's been kind of tough for me, but it's also been a big help for me to be able to work on this and focus on this and hear all of these great people and their humanity, their souls and spirits and intellects and hearts. So uh, I dedicate this to my father, Nicola Francesco Pugliese. Enjoy the rest of uh, this year, and we'll be talking with you again soon and looking forward to 2023. As always, thanks for listening. Ciao. che un sogno così non ritorni mai più mi dipingevo le mani e la faccia di blu poi d'improvviso venivo dal vento rapito e incominciavo a volare nel cielo infinito Felice di stare lassù E volavo, volavo felice Più in alto del sole ed ancora più su Mentre il mondo pian piano spariva lontano laggiù Una musica dolce suonava soltanto per me di blu felice di stare lassù 